I'm really excited by the new series um, that we're in called DNA, and that's that theme song we're singing throughout these next number of weeks, I believe, and affirming those core beliefs that we have as a Christian church. And uh, I'm really excited about this series because I'm still a new guy here. And you might say, how long are you going to play that card for, Jono? Well, uh, if you take away the six months of lockdown, I'm still in my first year, so I'm very much still getting to know people and getting to know the church culture here. It's my first time engaging with these core beliefs as a church. So this six-week journey looking at who we are as a church is really exciting for me. So last week we looked at biblical authority and we said that as a church, we value Scripture as our highest authority. And we, we said it's not just about reading Scripture, though, remember. It's about delighting in God's Word. It's about meditating on God's Word. And we ended with this concept called FWLW. Anyone remember that? First word, last word. It's important to give your first word in the day to God. It's important to give your final word of the day to God, your last word. So how are you going with that? It's transformational if you actually grab a hold of that concept and live it out. First word, last word. So Scripture was our number one value as a church. We are a Bible-based church. We will delight in God's Word. We will meditate in God's Word. We will shape our, our church culture around Scripture. Next value, and I love that this has come up in the context of Mother's Day because mothers are very much world changers and shape the culture of the next generation, are very much influential. So here's the next value to consider, disciple making. Making disciples is a clear mandate from Christ. This requires a strong missional focus on evangelism and training in spiritual growth and holy living. Done effectively, this will produce and promote growth and health in and among the churches. Now these core beliefs were formed well before I arrived at Access, but this particular one really resonates with me. And I love that there's two things linked here. That is evangelism and discipleship. Often they get separated into two different categories, but they're very much connected. And in my simplistic way of thinking, I'm just committed to moving everyone towards being closer to Jesus Christ, regardless of where they're starting, whether they need evangelism, as in they're not even yet born again, they don't even know Jesus. I'm just committed to moving them towards Him, no matter where they are, whether they're brand new believers. Today's the first day they've, they've expressed faith in Jesus and I want to move them further towards Christ to whether someone's been in church 50 years they're still yet further to go towards Christ and this is a discipleship journey that we're on we're all moving towards Christ in a deeper and more wholehearted way and that's always my driving concern to move everyone towards Christ However, churches often are settling for less than this. They're after just decisions instead of true discipleship. And that's a poor trade, if you ask me. We've traded in decisions for true discipleship, if we can move to the next slide. Yeah, thanks, guys. So what does that look like? What does that trade look like? Well, it, it ends up being that we're, we're, we're counting how many hands go up at the end of our meetings for our decisions, instead of how many lives have been changed over the past year. And I say year because that's what discipleship growth it looks like. It's accumulated over time. You can't tell in, in a church service on a weekend whether someone's really on a discipleship journey or not. You need to see their life over the course of a longer period of time. But this is where churches have gone now to measure statistics 
Now, I've said previously that in another message, the Sunday altar is meaningless without Monday alterations. We need more than just decisions. We need discipleship. And if we're only going to just look at statistics and how numbers are going, whether we've got more this year than last year, we're pretty shallow and we're missing what discipleship is really all about. Alan Hirsch gives this stinging remark. Many of our current practices seem to be the wrong way around. We seem to make church complex and discipleship too easy. Being a disciple is not easy. It's a commitment to a lifetime of change. It's not found in how many times I've attended church this year. It's found in what church has done to me this year and what I've allowed the Spirit of God to work on me during my time at church. And it's found then more in what I've done outside of the church hour than what I've done inside it. It's whether I handle my anger better than I do at this time last year. That shows whether I'm really a disciple of Jesus or not. Do I still fly off the handle when the umpire's decision goes against me? Or are I actually gone about some meaningful change because Jesus Christ is Lord and that's making a difference in my life. It's whether I show up at work on time. See, my discipleship is found in my work ethic. Graham spoke to us about this a couple of weeks ago. It's a difference Christ makes in my life there in the marketplace where I used to cut corners. I used to arrive late and leave early, but now I don't. Because I'm a Jesus follower and that value is influencing the way I work. This is where discipleship is found. It's in the school playground or work tea room when Mike is getting smashed and he's not there to defend himself. But instead of joining in on the gossip trail, you actually step in and say a good word about Mike. This is where our discipleship journey plays out. So we don't want to be a people that come together on the weekend and do church well. We want to be a people whose lives are being transformed. We're not counting decisions, how many people put their hands up on the weekend. We're counting life change. And that is the longer game, but that is the discipleship game. This is what it looks like to be a disciple-making church. In Matthew 28, we find what we now call the Great Commission. And Jesus gives parting remarks to his first followers and they're all-time instructions that act as a guide for our mission still to this day. The fact that we call this the Great Commission shows the importance of it. It's the core of Jesus' message. He says this, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Create disciples, Jesus says, that is learners or followers or apprentices of me. And to signify their deep commitment into entering this life with me, baptise them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord, and may he add his blessing to the reading of it. A noticeable demand comes through in this scripture, make disciples. Jesus wants his church forever committed to that. The question becomes how? How do we do it? How do we make disciples? 
I think the question then becomes, how did Jesus do it? Because that would be our model. So how did Jesus make his disciples? How did he influence people? Now, I've chosen five things for us to think about tonight that lay outside of Matthew. They're spread throughout the Gospels. Five ways in which Jesus made disciples. Now, really, I could have chosen 50, but we've got a certain amount of time, and so I've limited it to five. Now, some of you here are going to say, stop right there, John. I'm only 15. I'm not really making disciples. I'm way too young for this conversation. Well, no, you're not. Guess what? To a 10-year-old, you're old. You're old. So your younger brother or sister or cousin or friend at school is looking up to you and working out how to do life based on your example. There'll be someone else in the room or watching online who's not 15, they're 50. But they're going, I'm not sure that I'm really into this Jesus stuff yet. I'm still deciding. Well, good news. Jesus is a master, world-class leader. And the principles are still going to apply whether you decide to be a follower or not. You can still benefit from the wisdom. This is what's amazing about the Bible. And this is what's amazing about Jesus being a leader. These principles still apply across the board. So Jesus carried forward his influence via prayerful selection, high invitation, verbal instruction, deliberate limitation, mutual responsibility. There's a mouthful and a half hay. We're going to work through them all in rapid fire succession. You ready? Jesus carried his influence by prayerful selection. This is how he started out in his choice of disciples and making disciples. Now you say, John, I thought you said this would apply to me and I'm outside of faith. Prayerful selection, not a good start. Well, in your case, make it careful selection. We'll make it our deal for the next 30 minutes. Prayerful selection. You call it careful if you like. Jesus applied prayer to his choice of where he would give his time to. He selected his early disciples and he did so with great prayer. He didn't just go out willy-nilly and say, hey there world, anybody listening? Anyone got time for a coffee this week? That's not how Jesus made his selection. If you're not being aware of it before now, let it be breaking news for you. Before Jesus invested time in 12 early disciples, he spent the whole night previously in prayer to determine who he would select. Let me say that again. Jesus spent a whole night in prayer to decide the people to invest in. Now, it's regularly mentioned that Jesus went off to pray in isolated spaces, but it's rare to say he pulled an all-nighter. Here he did, an all-nighter to decide who to invest his leadership influence in. Luke 12 gives us a detail. One night, soon afterward, Jesus went up to a mountain to pray and he prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples and chose 12 of them to be apostles. It may surprise you that Jesus already had a pool of disciples before now, many more than 12. He just hadn't selected a special 12 just yet until now. At this moment, after a night of prayer, the line gets drawn, the circle, if you like, gets drawn. These are the people I'm going to deeply invest in out of a much wider network. Jesus selected his circle of influence. 
I'm not sure if you're getting the picture here or not. Let me spell it out. Not everybody got equal face time with Jesus. He selected 12. He had layers. Jesus had 72, we find elsewhere in the gospel. He gave them some level of exposure to the extent where he felt comfortable sending them out as missional representatives of his. But he has a 12 that he invests more deeply in that we read about here. And elsewhere we read he's got an even smaller group. His home group is 12 initially, but then he's got an even smaller group of three, three that he invested even more deeply. And there were certain times when these other nine were told, you can wait outside. You're not required for this job. Imagine how that felt. I guess I'll just wait here. <laughs> Put a reject sticker on my forehead while those three go in. Jesus drew circles around where he gave his time. Why would he do that? To play favourites? To make the other nine feel excluded? I mean, it sounds harsh, doesn't it? Well, Jesus knew he couldn't give equal time to everybody. Time is a limited commodity. And even though Jesus was God, he still only had 168 hours just like the rest of us do. He didn't go deep with everybody. He knew he couldn't go deep with everybody. Jesus modelled relational tears. He realised his time was limited. It's a reminder if you try and spread yourself too thin, you lose taste. Every true blue Aussie loves Vegemite. They don't like Vegemite, they adore Vegemite. If you're not a true blue Aussie, then you probably don't. But if you're a true blue Aussie, you love Vegemite. Vegemite on toast, best breakfast ever, right? Well, the Americans, I happen to know, haven't got on board this phenomenon. I've had enough to do with Americans being married to an American and having therefore American relatives to know that many of them will say, ah, oh, disgusting stuff. I tried it, it was terrible. Now, problem is not the product, the problem is a lack of skill. <laughs> a lack of skill. Americans lack skill in this issue and that is the issue. You see, what Americans don't know is there must be great care taken on the spread. You don't spread Vegemite. Hey, someone up the back is with me. You don't spread Vegemite like you do butter or jam. It's all about how you spread the Vegemite, right? And if you're highly skilled at that, you'll have an amazing experience. Vegemite on toast, wonderful. I wonder when it comes to our time and influence, how well do we understand spread? The 168 hours that we've got in a week, and if we try and spread ourselves wrong, life kind of goes all out of kilter. Try and do too much and run yourself ragged, we lose our taste. Knowing how to spread our influence is a key life skill. Jesus understood this and it wasn't about playing favourites, it was about him and it's about us saying who's the one, two or three that I can invest in deeply for the benefit of all. I'm investing deeply for the benefit of everybody. 
we're going to have to prayerfully decide where our time goes. We've only got 168 hours. That's all we've got. We're not getting any bonus hours. This is a set thing. As the mission rolls down into the hands of Paul and then in turn into the hands of the younger Timothy, this is the advice given as a discipleship baton is passed. Timothy, you've heard me, so I've taught you, I, Paul, older guys taught the younger guy, I've taught you, now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Timothy, select carefully who you invest into. Don't go for anybody. Make sure they're trustworthy, people who will carry your influence on. We're going to move quick. Jesus carried his influence via prayerful selection, via high invitation. Jesus' call to his apprentices was not, would you like to have coffee on a Tuesday between 6 and 7 at the local coffee shop? I'm available. That's not how he did it. It's a good starting point to get to know someone, but Jesus did more, a lot more. Jesus did something far more demanding. He said, come and follow me. Follow you? Follow you where? Everywhere. Come and follow me. Come and do life with me. This isn't a church hour. This isn't a coffee hour. This isn't a sacred and secular divide. You know, we've got our religious bits and then we've got our personal time. No, no, no. Follow me 24-7. The offer to hang out with Jesus was of a high bar nature, yeah? We'll do life and we'll do it together. In another recent sermon series, we commented on the differences between our culture and theirs. How that in the first central Jewish culture, it was not abnormal to do life together. You naturally did life in community. Many households had 30 or 40 people in them. So life together was never a question. It was whether you're doing life together well. Our question is, are we doing life together at all? Because we have so little exposure into the life of one another. So whilst this comment by Jesus, come and follow me, enter my tribe, if you will, was not radical in first century Jewish traditions. There were many rabbis who had apprentices who would do life together. So this high invitation is somewhat cultural. Come and follow me. But I'll tell you what isn't cultural or normal was the actual ask. The invitation included high exposure, yeah, that was part of the high calling, but it was an invitation into high suffering as well. There's high invitation in terms of exposure, but there's high invitation in terms of what it's going to cost you. And Jesus makes this comment, birds of the air have nests and foxes have holes and I have nowhere to lay my head. But hey, come and do life with me. It's going to be great. Ha, doesn't sound great. What's going to be great about it? Well, it'll be great in suffering at least. Come and do life with me. It was a high invitation. Bonhoeffer says, suffering is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above the master. We shouldn't be guilty of hiding the cost of discipleship. It's high. The bar is high. Come and follow me, Jesus says. There's a price to pay. Sometimes we want to conceal this. We want to show people the good side and hold the cost of discipleship. And we want to let them discover the underbelly later in their own time. 
Just show them the attractive side and let them discover the prickles in their own time later as they get along the road. You know, we catch people under the guise of the decision-making that I was telling you about earlier. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Who's going to put their hand up for that? And we all put our hand up. But we know nothing about the discipleship journey. If we shield the costs from people, what happens is they just leave the faith later. So the decision is just delayed. They still rejected Jesus, though. We just delayed the decision for them. The gospel is free, but it costs everything. Because at the heart of the gospel is the lordship of Jesus. He's asking us to follow, not the other way around. The invitation is a high one. Jesus isn't offering an easy pass. It's in our best interest to show people that cost. Jesus carries influence via prayerful selection, high invitation and verbal instruction. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 climaxes with this idea of teaching them to obey. Teach them to obey. Jesus gave the majority of his ministry time to teaching people about the ways of God. He spoke words. He used his mouth to communicate. I influence this because we've drifted so far from it. Nowadays, we have this slogan bandied around as though it were true. Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Well, kind of sounds attractive and poetic and nice, but we do need to use words. This kind of uh, mentality of use words if necessary is growing, but it's actually quite old. It's St. Francis of Assisi, but it's not in alignment with Jesus' words here. Jesus says words are necessary. You say, Jonah, but you don't understand the cultural context if you think we should go out preaching because the church has lost respect in the wider community. So they don't want to hear our preaching. They want to see our action. Actions speak louder than words. Well, of course they do. But actions all by themselves are never enough. The words must be associated with the actions. Our actions and our words belong together. People aren't meant to have to speculate whether we are followers of Jesus or not. In the teachings of Jesus, he indicates the power of the simple. It doesn't take much to have influence. One day he said, a glass of water would do it. Give people a glass of water in my name and that is valid Christian ministry. Just give a glass of water. Now a COVID safe world, it'd be a bottle of Mount Franklin, wouldn't it? <laughs> Here's the problem. It wasn't long ago that in some church circles, they were devaluing water ministry. Give a glass of water? What's that got to do with the gospel? How will any souls be saved through water? We're not interested in water. We're going to preach to people. This is the voice I grew up hearing. Don't worry about practical aid. That's not our focus. Our focus is a word ministry, not a water ministry. Well, if that switch hasn't been flicked to the opposite end of the spectrum, call me Mount Franklin. Because now we're interested in a water ministry, but we don't bring our words to accompany the aid. 
We need to bring our words, Jesus said. We've got to speak the words. We've got to teach his commands. We've got a society now that's just overvaluing listening. And the spoken word then is being undervalued. We have a whole counselling movement based on this. Just listening, reflective listening. And uh, I go to the counsellor and they sit there and they listen to me for an hour and they say, what I'm hearing you say is X, Y and Z. And I feel like saying, mate, I've got a recording device on my phone that I could have pressed play on an hour ago and it wouldn't have cost me anything and it could have played back what I said. I actually paid 175 bucks to get in here and I thought you might have actually spoken something in terms of insight or wisdom on this situation. But no, they listen and they reflect back what was said. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you for listening. Next time I'll use my phone. I was imagining that your 25 years of vast studies and experience might have actually resulted in you saying something to me rather than only listen. Apparently the expert in the room is now the silent one. The influence of Jesus was based on speaking. He used words. Now I know there's someone in the room that's going to need to develop the skill of listening. That's your development area and that's fine. Absolutely there's a place for listening. Don't let me devalue that at all. Only now we've got a non-dominant hand to work on, which is actually speaking into the lives of people as well. I'm not trying to undervalue listening. I'm just saying I think as a culture we've started undervaluing teaching. And Jesus says we've got to teach, we've got to speak, we've got to use our mouths to carry the gospel forward. Jesus carried his influence via prayerful selection, high invitation, verbal instruction and deliberate limitation. Speaking of limitations, we're running out of time, we're not going to spend long here. I just want you to note Jesus deliberately limited himself. Even as teacher, mentor, influencer, he didn't hide his humanity. He modelled limitations. Some of us might need some liberation around our limitations. So let me explain. Your Christian testimony does not rely on you being a perfect human being. It just doesn't. And some of us need to be liberated from that. Jesus regularly showed off his human side. I didn't say his sinful side. He didn't have a sinful side. But he showed off his humanity. He let people know when he was tired or hungry or sad. He was vulnerable. He sometimes felt afraid and he, and he showed it. On his way to the cross, Jesus was scared stiff. And he shared that experience with his circle. I think sometimes we're afraid of being human, of being authentic. And we think, well, if I'm tired or sad or upset, I'll ruin my Christian testimony. People will think less of me if they see cracks. Well, I'm not sure. They might be relieved you're actually human. Part of the reason last week I finished by sharing with you some of my struggles, my anxiety, my insecurity, is because showing humanity doesn't diminish Christian witness. It actually 
the gospel is best seen in our human weakness at times. Jesus showed his humanity and just becoming a human in the first place was a limitation, yeah? It was. Jesus could have come as an angel. You ever thought about that? He could have flown from town to town. I mean, that would have been far more productive than walking on feet. But Jesus chose a human body. Had Jesus chosen to be an angel, he, he might have had 24 disciples. He could have achieved more. But he operated in the confines of humanity. He was God, but with skin on in human form. When he fell over on the playground, his knee bled just like yours. It's time to let go of us thinking that to be influential, I've got to be superhuman. No, you don't. You just got to be yourself. When Jesus was upset or tired or sad, he allowed that to be seen by people. I think it's good if we do as well. Somehow we feel great pressure underneath here, and I wonder why. What's underneath the pressure that we feel? Well, John, it's because I'm the only Bible some people will ever read. That's what I read on the book, Mark. I'm the only Bible some people will ever read, and the pressure is on. Because if I'm the only Bible these people ever read, I better be a 10 out of 10 version of a Christian. I must be game on. I must never show any weakness. Well, that might create admirers, but I'm not sure it'll create disciples. Craig Groeschel is right. If we want to impress people, show our strengths. If we want to connect with people, show our weakness. What do we want to do? Connect or impress? Well, she might have seen this comment on the bookmark about you being the only Bible some people ever read. You actually never read it in the Bible because it's not in here. The Bible says quite the opposite. You are not the only Bible some people ever read. The Bible says every single day creation is screaming forth the existence of God. It says that in multiple places the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies show his handiwork. So no, you are not the only Christian testimony in the world. Creation every single day, every single day testifies to the existence of God. So much so that the Bible says people are without excuse because it's so clear. You are not the only Bible. Nobody can pin their unbelief on your humanity. Nobody. It's their choice to be a believer or not. Jesus showed a willingness to be vulnerable, to show his human side. I take that as permission. You should too. Hey, parent. Hey, employer. Hey, 15-year-old mentor who's got the 10-year-old watching. You don't have to pretend you know all the answers. You don't. Work them out together in partnership. That's a good way to get to our final point. Jesus carried his influence by mutual responsibility. Mutual responsibility. Had a neighbour a few years back I was building a friendship with. It was going really well. We were becoming mates. We were becoming close. We talked often. I, t I looked for every single opportunity I had to serve him. I thought that was my role 
as a follower of Jesus. I needed to serve Him. And I looked for opportunities every single day and I prayed for those opportunities. And not many opportunities came. Do you want the honest truth? He was far more gifted than I was. So when the car broke down, he was helping me. I couldn't help him. When there's something, there's a job that needed doing around the home, he was far more advanced than I was in terms of skill sets. I had no way of helping him, I came to realise. And I'm looking for all these opportunities to help and nothing is opening up. I had a light bulb moment one day. I wonder if I could ask him for help because I was the one that needed the help. Something funny happened that day. It was just a small thing, simple thing. May I use your trailer? I've got to take some rubbish to the, what do we call it nowadays? The environmental centre. <laughs> May I use your trailer? No worries, he said. A strange dynamic happened. A, a, a switch got flicked in the relationship. Because I asked him, guess what? From that day forward, he felt free to ask me. I made myself vulnerable. I put myself in a position where I needed help. My father owned a trailer. I didn't need his trailer. I could have easily got one five minutes down the road. But I decided that day, maybe if I put myself in a position of weakness where I need the help, he'll feel comfortable to do the same. Guess what? A couple of weeks later, they'll go on holidays. Jono, do you mind feeding the dog while we're away? We're going to be away for a few days. Do you, do you mind, I'll tell you the, you know, give you the instructions. Do you mind coming over and feeding our dog? No problem at all. Trust got built. The relationship went to a whole other level, not because I helped him, but because I let him help me. Remember Jesus with Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, come down. Start preparing a meal. I'm coming over for dinner. What? What? Isn't Jesus the one that's meant to be serving others? No, he let himself be served at times. And it created a relational dynamic that led to something deeper. Jesus had a clear mission to create disciples, not dependents. He had a three-year plan to invest deeply and then hand it over to them. It's a novel idea for us Aussies in 2021. You say, John, well, the only reason Jesus did it that way is because he knew his time was short and he was going back to heaven soon. And that's the reason he expected so much of people. I wouldn't do it that way. If I enter a mentoring relationship, I enter for life. I commit to them forever. Well, it might be good to have a connection with them for life, but not a dependence. And they're two different things. Yes, have a life connection, but no, don't create a dependency for life. The gospel is not served by us doing all the serving. If it means we're giving people an everlasting free ride, that's called enablement, not Christian witness. From the word go, Jesus expected mutual participation from people. He didn't just do all the serving. It was a partnered space. Jesus and them serving together. I invite you to take another look at the Gospels and look at it through a certain lens. Who served who? Did Jesus serve them 
or did they serve him? I suggest it was both. Both. You see it time and time and time again. We've got time for just one quick example, the feeding of the 5,000. Who did the miracle? Jesus, of course. So the disciples just sat back on the lounge chair and watched it all unfold. Ah, no way. They had to go and source the food in the first place. They had to come back and give a report. And then Jesus prays over it. He does the supernatural bit. They do the natural bit. And then they have to distribute it. And then get this, who does the clean up? They do. The disciples, they served him. Influence doesn't mean enablement. Hey, parent, hey, mentor, hey, employer, stop giving out free rides. Nobody's served well by that. You might be just enabling. And that person might never see their need of God if you keep showing up. If you keep showing up and playing centre and rescuing every single time, they might never enter a space where they actually see their need for a saviour. Jesus carried his influence by prayerful selection, high invitation, verbal instruction, deliberate limitations and mutual responsibility. I realise there's a tonne of work to be done under each of those. Maybe you'd pick one. Maybe you'd say that's an area I need to develop in rather than try and do them all at once. What's your development area? As you think about the people you're trying to influence, where's one area where you think, I need to do more of that? I'll let you decide that. You, in your own time, take that away and pray it over and let the Lord show you. Rick Warren said it well when he said this, a great commitment to the Great Commission will build a great church. And that's our prayer. That's our hope. That's our commitment. That's our dream. So help us, God. Would you stand right now as we pray? Lord, we're indebted to people who have invested in us, who've told us about you, who've demonstrated what it looks like to follow you. We give thanks for them. Thank you for our parents. In particular, thank you for our mothers this weekend and how the people of faith, whether they're our earthly parents, whether they're our spiritual parents who have invested so much in us, we give thanks, Lord. And we endeavour to be those people to others who show what it looks like to follow Jesus. So, Lord, give us wisdom with our time. Help us not spread too thin. Lord, help us not hide the cost of the gospel, what it really looks like to follow. Lord, give us boldness to open our mouth and let that accompany our good works to show and tell people about you. Lord, teach us vulnerability. Help us know that you certainly aren't expecting superhuman. We can't do it anyway. So Lord, teach us to be honest. And we ask, Lord, 
for those people who would want to use our generous hearts to their own ends and enable bad behaviour. Lord, help us have discernment. Help us not create unhealthy dependencies. Help us be led by your Spirit. Lord, we thank you for the great adventure called life that you're inviting us into. Jesus, you say, come follow me. And I thank you that that, Lord, is the abundant life. And so we choose it together in your name. Jesus, be the centre of it all.